0: Welcome to episode 276 of the Reformed
1: Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Falling Podcasters.
2: For you. In this world I do.
1: Hey, brother.
0: Hey, brother. This episode is a real treat because we're going back to something that we used to do with some frequency but haven't done it in a while and if you've been tracking with us, you know what that means. It's question cast.
1: Yeah, I went back and looked and it's been over a year since we did Ugh. question cast. The last one uh, was I believe was sometime in uh, May of twenty twenty and it was the Lord's Supper question cast. So it was several series ago, it was like the culmination of the Lord's Supper series we did. So I'm pretty stoked. We've got some really good questions lined up. I'm pretty excited. Yeah. So
0: just so people are familiar with the protocol here, we love it when brother and sister listeners join in the conversation and send us their questions. And the best way to do that, as you hear this and you're thinking, no, I have a question. Why is it my question on the cast? It's one of two reasons. Either one, it's in our backlog and we're moving through it, or two, you just haven't called us yet and left a question. So how can people call us and actually leave a question in their own voice?
1: Yes, you can dial 607 444 Bros. That spells out bros in case you wonder why Jesse and I do that every time we say the phone number. <laughs> uh, or if you live outside the United States or for whatever reason you don't want to use a phone, uh, you can record ideally in an MP3 file because uh, that's the smallest file format. But you could record that using like the voice memo function on your iPhone or on your Android and then email that to info at reformbrotherhood.com throw a little thing in the subject that says question cast question or something like that so we can quickly find it. And we like short voicemails because it means we can get through more of them. Uh, It keeps the question on point, which as we all know, Jesse and I have a tough time staying on point (laughs) as it is. So a nice tight question helps us to stay on point, which means we can get through more questions in an episode.
0: That's right. So let's do it. No more further delay. Let's get into some questions. We're trying to get through as many as we can on this episode. So here is question number one.
3: Hey guys, Josh from St. Louis again. I had a question for you. So in the last episode, Tony had mentioned um, that giving your testimony is not the gospel. And uh, it got me thinking, I'd love to uh, hear your guys' thoughts on... When is it appropriate to give our testimony, and for what purpose does it accomplish? I guess um, I've seen people use Revelation uh, twelve eleven to kind of back why they should give their testimony, but yeah, I was curious on your guys' thoughts. If uh, if it's not presenting the gospel, uh, then what do we use it for?
0: So I love this question from Brother Josh. I'm grateful he asked it, and I love when people enter into the conversation by saying, hey, I'll listen to you guys talk about this and I got a follow-up question. And this is a really great one. So let me recapitulate what he's saying here, I think, is if one's testimony is not the gospel, and we should probably kind of specify what we are talking about there, he goes on to ask, then when is it appropriate to give our testimony and what is the purpose of giving our testimony?
1: Yeah, yeah. So to sort of like clarify the, the question or clarify what's being referred to here is it's pretty common when... Evangelicals go out and they try to share their faith, or they try to t- try to do witnessing encounters. Right, that's kind of the the classic language from evangelicalism. As I was witnessing to somebody, they tend to share their own testimony as though that was the gospel. So they'll say like, "I was I was sharing a gospel with a friend the other day, and I was telling him all about how what Jesus has done in my life and how he changed me, and I told him about when I came right. to faith." And you know this. This is a very stereotypical, classical Mike Horton Whitehorse in kind of thing to say. But the gospel is not your testimony. The gospel is a very specific kind of kind of speech. It's a very specific set of facts. Um, primarily and almost exclusively, it is that uh, the second person of the Trinity became flesh, lived a righteous life on our behalf and died on our behalf, uh, was raised for our justification, and ascended to the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us. Uh, and so those who trust in him, who, who have faith in him, uh, will certainly be saved. So that's, that's the gospel, right? You can go to like 1 Corinthians 15 is a really straightforward uh, presentation in the Bible, and it follows those same basic contours. Well, that's distinct from how the gospel has been applied in your life. Right. So right. if I tell someone I mentioned on the show last week I came to faith, you know, I think it was like 27 years earlier. I didn't, can't do the math on the fly, but I came to faith on January 23rd, 1998. Um, that that is not the gospel. That is the gospel being applied to me. That's me accepting and receiving the gospel and trusting the gospel, but that's not the gospel. So I think the question here is good is well then what purpose does it what the purpose does it serve to share our testimony? you know do we do that along with the gospel when do we do that how do we do that i think that's a really good question because it it's one of those things that we people in our circles are quick to say this is not the gospel but right. we are not as quick to say sometimes because i think we for a good purpose we want to point at what jesus has done Uh, We want to point at the gospel itself. Nobody can can be saved by having faith in my testimony, right? But they can be saved by trusting the gospel and obeying the gospel. So this question, though, of where does this come in? How do we share it? Why do we share it? Do we even share our testimonies? I think is a really, really good question.
0: Yeah, I'm totally on board, of course, with what you're saying. This idea, I think think what we are pushing back against is this overly or overtly evangelical idea as if, I think we've all seen this happen, where somebody gives their personal experience that is so subjective and nuanced to their stage of life or season that what happens is, even if it's well-intentioned, the facts, the objective reality of what it means to be saved by God gets lost or obscured in this massive story about what God has done, which sometimes in a postmodern world can lead somebody else who's hearing that story to say, well, I'm so glad it works for you. And what yeah. we're pushing against is this idea that no, the, the gospel is a sense of objective facts and objective reality that is applied to all, but is often manifest in slightly different ways as God transforms our lives, according to this essential and immutable truth. So this is why, of course, to go back and quote something like first Peter three, we're talking about always being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but you don't want to get lost in the application of that hope so that you lose the actual hope that you have, which generated the particular circumstances around how your life has changed. I think that's actually more a mark of kind of evangelical culture getting lost in personal storytelling than it is in about people understanding what it means. So to your point, when we throw away words like justification, we're talking about like forensic reality. Forensics by itself is, again, this immutable truth that can be discerned and quantified and expressed in a way that is like consistent across many people talking about that same thing. That's yeah. what we're after here. Some of that has gotten lost. I think it's just this storytelling. We have like, you know, Netflix, we t- we have, um, I'm not trying to put like Netflix on blast, but like this idea of like, there's, there's so many ways to tell stories these days, podcasting and dramas and documentaries where it can seem like, well, this is just one story among many about a person who particularly was impacted by a thing that might not have any relevance to me. Right. And we're trying to push against that culture. So I would say, the benefit of having a testimony is, one, to attest to the faithfulness of God in the transaction that we know to be objective, how it has actually changed who you are. There is power in that, but it is not the essence of the power. It is derivative from the gospel message, which is that Christ has come to save and that God in his redeeming work has done that salvation. And here is how it has transferred and transpired in my particular life. But it does not separate from the fact that it is applicable to you as well. So I think that could be a, like a lovely entry point but it can't be the main thing. It has to be something that allows us to resonate perhaps, or to be able to explain what God has done. But we need to be careful to make sure that we're always getting to the gospel and that we don't just get stuck in, here's my story. But like that, this story comes from this gospel, which is clearly identifiable, clearly quantifiable, clearly expressed in these objective ways. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, to answer the question in in maybe a little bit more direct way, we look at what the word itself is, right? The word is testimony, or we go out witnessing, right. right? This is courtroom language. So so the gospel is an objective fact. It's an event that happened in history that has implications for our lives when we trust the Savior, and that's the gospel, right? The, the Savior has saved his people. That's the good news. Well, our testimony now, as we're sharing that alongside the gospel or in addition to the gospel, that, that's actually evidence of the reality of that gospel, right? So you share the gospel and then you say, and this is what Jesus has done for me, right? This isn't the gospel. You can't trust in my testimony in order to be saved, but my testimony is evidence to the truth of the gospel. Right. And and Paul even uses this kind of language, right? He says, like that I think it was the Corinthians or maybe well no he, he was kind of kind of beaten up on the Corinthians. Some somebody <laughs> right. he said, You're my letter, right? Like the, yes. the people that Paul had uh, been a minister to who had come to the faith were his letters of recommendation. Right. So when he was up against the super apostles, so that tells me he probably was actually Corinthians, first or second Corinthians. When, when he's kind of trying to, to prove the veracity of his gospel and his veracity of apostleship, he points primarily to the objective facts, right? I was called by Jesus. No one gave me my gospel. I got it directly from God. But then as a sort of secondary evidence, he says, but also look at the lives of these people who have been changed by the gospel that I preached. This is the, the evidence, right? And just the kind of the classic text that I think a lot of, um, a lot of evangelicals go to, but they go to wrongly is in Revelation chapter 12, uh and verse starting in verse 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come, for the accuser of our brother has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Right. So we're talking about courtroom language, the accuser. This is a right. legal accusation that Satan is lodging against the church. And he says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, right? The objective reality of the gospel. And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So so the point of this passage, and obviously this is prophetic language, there's all sorts of symbolism wrapped up into it, but the point is that the church and the gospel are going to come under attack. They're going to be put in the dock and they're going to be called to uh, prove or validate the reality that they're presenting. Well, one of the ways that that is proved is that it actually is effective in the lives of believers, that people right. who have trusted in Christ, in the gospel, actually have lives that reflect the change that the gospel promises, right? Sanctification and justification are both twin benefits that come from Christ when we receive him by faith. So we need to see, you can't see justification, It's not, it's not an objective thing you can see. You can't, we can't test whether someone is justified, it's a status change. But sanctification is something that we can see and assess externally by looking at the way a person lives in conformity to the law, which I think we're going to get to in a later question here. But that testimony, that evidence that is presented when we share what Jesus has done for us and how he's changed our lives, which is what our testimony is primarily, that evidence is a supplement to the gospel that helps prove that it's right true. And we've all seen this in the opposite direction, right? We've all—we, I'm sure that every one of us knows somebody who seemed like they may have been close to coming to the faith, and then they're treated really terribly by a Christian, and all of a sudden that contrary evidence leads them to the wrong conclusion that the gospel is not true, right? So, so we have this this contra evidence that when someone who calls themselves a Christian. Uh, doesn't actually live a life. It doesn't bear testimony that proves that the gospel is true. It has the opposite effect. It's the same, same thing in the other direction that us living a righteous life. We've said it before, like no, one's going to walk up to you on the street that that old trope of like, someone's just going to see how you live your life different. And they're going to want to know what it is. And they're going to want it like that youth pastor stop being such idiots trope. That that it just doesn't happen. Like I've been a Christian for 28 years. I've never once had someone go, you know, something's really different about you. I just need to hear what you got to say. Like people have observed that like I live my life differently, but they, they don't make that connection. They don't do it. But once I've shared with them that I'm a Christian, they start to connect those dots. Tony seems to be a very almost, almost overly scrupulously honest person. I bet that's because he has faith in Christ. I've had people who've made that connection once they know I'm a Christian. So I think that's where our testimony comes in as this sort of supporting evidence. It's not going to be enough to, to seal the deal. No one can trust in your testimony and be saved. But right. it is supporting evidence that helps, helps demonstrate that the gospel is true and real and that what Christ promises in the gospel to us, that what God promises us in our baptism actually is true. It shows that God has been faithful. And that's consistently across the scripture. Whenever whenever we're called to look back at the faithful saints, it's not to look at how great they are. It's to look at how great God is in what he has done in their life, right? Hebrews 11 is all about that.
0: Right on. I love it. The testimony, again, we should say we're not like anti-testimony, but also there's just been this strange way in which the testimony has been for lack of a better way of saying it, like elevated to a particular presentation or occurrence. And I think what we're saying here is greater than that. But of course, it's derived all from the gospel. So it's helpful to distinguish between the two and just know in which lane you're kind of traveling when you're interacting with people to make sure that we're always moving back to that beautiful, beautiful, sweet gospel. So that's right on. Let's do some more questions. Yeah, let's do it.
2: Good morning, bros. I just got done listening to the episode on Incept Pops. And I was just thinking about the Trinity and the simpler nature of God, and I was wondering how that all works together with uh, the covenant of redemption, and uh, I didn't know if we'd get into that in the series or if this would be a good question for the question cast, but I think it's something like uh, The Father's Bargain with the Son uh, by uh, John Flavel, and just wondering how the things we've learned about God's singularity and and the inseparability of the operation works uh if that's if John Flavel's work there is just something that would be speaking improperly of God you uh, know in, in a worshipful or meditative way or if there's a way to um understand better the the covenant of redemption in terms of of God's God's uh oneness all right that's my question thanks have a good one.
0: So my brother and man, Natty P here, coming in with a great question. we got a bunch of questions in response to this lovely series we've been working on, which is basically the Bible and theology. So... <laughs> Here is one that I think is really good, and he goes back to he's referring to. In case people are tracking with us, want to know what he's talking about, our definitive episode on Insep Op or Inseparable Operations. And this question is really good because he's he's synthesizing here. He's trying to bring together things that we talked about. And the question is, how do we understand this covenant of redemption? And he references in particular, like the bargain between the father and son, which he also references John Fulvell has written extensively on. There's a lot of great reading there that everybody can look into. But in light of this covenant of redemption and in light of inseparable, inseparable operations, what gives now before we get to the question, I'm going to slip in. I'm sneaking in an affirmation here, which is that wolves at the gate have a song actually called the father's bargain. That's like wonderful, beautiful, amazing theology. You can go listen to that right now and then come back into this question. You'll have all the perspective and context that you need, but this is really good. Insep-op, in op and covenant of redemption. we got economy of Trinity and we got God
1: being involved in all the works of God. What gives? What say you? Yeah. I'm just going to solve this equation here. No, this <laughs> is, I mean, this is a tough question, right? This, right. this is, um, we all know how I feel about eternal functional subordination advocates. Wait, do and we all know how you feel about that? We do. There's been several hours spent <laughs> on how I feel about eternal functional subordination. Amen. Um, let me put it this way. The strongest argument that the eternal functional subordination people bring is when they point to the, the covenant of redemption, right? Because Depending on how you frame it, the covenant of redemption actually does appear to have several different wills at play, right? And that's why I say, depending on how you frame it, it's really important to frame it correctly um, even the language of covenant is not something that I actually like to use. I would right. much prefer calling calling it the pactum salutis, or if I yes. have to translate that to English, I'd say like the council of peace or the pact of salvation. And, and pact and pact covenant are, I mean, they're very similar words. They, they interchangeable in Latin in certain senses. But what we have to remember is that the covenant of redemption is not... Um, it's not the kind of covenant that we normally think of in scripture, which is why I don't actually like the word covenant. When we talk about a covenant in scripture or the covenant of works, covenant of grace or the Mosaic covenant or, or suzerainty treaties, Abraham's covenant, all these different kinds of covenants, they always involve uh, in some sense, they involve a greater and a lesser party. Right, there's there's some sort of king who bestows a covenant onto a lesser uh, a lesser status person that includes benefits and requirements and then punishment if those requirements are not fil- fulfilled. Well, the the covenant of redemption can't be like that, right? We can't have a greater and a lesser party. So that's the first thing is we have to remember that when we're talking about the covenant of redemption. We have to start with some presuppositions based on what we already know to be true about God. So whatever we want to call it, we can't have a system where we have a a lesser party who's receiving terms from a greater party. Um, This idea of a bargain, which I know, I I think Flavel uses that language. Um, You know, John Owen, there was a question in the Facebook group, actually, where there was a quote from John Owen, where he talks about um, a voluntary concurrence and distinct consent of the father and the son. Right. So right. There, there's like this language that really seems to imply this plurality of wills that we've been so aggressive against. So we have to start with that presupposition that there is not this difference of wills. There's not a greater and a lesser party. And I think sometimes we do better to, to shape our language towards pact because a pact is really more of like a mutual agreement. Right. When we say pact, we're talking generally about two equal parties that make some sort of agreement with each other rather than a greater and a lesser party that are, are somehow making a bargain or cutting a deal, cutting a covenant. Um, so that's the first thing that I would say is we have to be careful how we phrase it and what, what the implications are. The other thing that I would say we have to be um, uh, careful of before we actually answer the question, even,
3: is
1: (laughs) we have to remember that some of this older language, especially from the Puritans, it's coming from a perspective that already affirms things like divine simplicity and inseparable operations. And we shouldn't take that to mean that someone like John Owen, who affirms divine simplicity and affirms inseparable operations in the scholastic sense, right? In the sense that someone like Thomas Aquinas, the boogeyman, all of a sudden that Thomas Aquinas or Athanasius or Augustine um, or Turretin, they're affirming those things in the same way. And so they're starting from that presupposition and they've expressed that presupposition elsewhere in really strong terms. So whatever we think about um, John Flavel's language or John Owen's language, we have to read it in light of that other commitment that they've already made. Um, That's what's different with the EFS guys is they haven't made that commitment. In a lot of ways, they're actually challenging that commitment or outright rejecting that commitment, right? So Owen Strahan, not to make this an an EFS thing, but Owen Strahan rejects that there is a pactum salutis, right? Right. you know, um, Dr. White rejects the idea that that uh, divine simplicity means that internal essence and existence and attributes are all identical to each other. So they reject the classical formulations that people like Flavel and Owen, affirmed. So we have to start from that position of not just looking at the language and reading it the way we would read it now, following the, uh, the enlightenment, following the EFS controversies and looking at the language going, that sure sounds a lot like what Wayne Grudem is saying. So it must be the same as what Wayne Grudem is saying. Well, there's a whole host of prior commitments that Wayne Grudem either has or has rejected that makes it different than what John Owen or John Flavel was saying. I'm going to take a break. Uh, Because that's a lot and I'll let you, I'll let you take a little swing at it too. Oh, that's great.
0: Yeah. So that was like a lot of prolegomena, but it's all necessary because, so here's how I'd kind of approach this. One is just like we've been saying all along, our language fails us. It's failing us here because I think when you read the Puritans in particular, where they're trying to express is that when we talk about God's work and the economy of the Trinity, basically the different persons of the Trinity contributing in specific, but not exclusive ways to all of salvation. Oftentimes what we're trying to emphasize is that there is volition, there is willingness. And of course, when you speak in those terms, we only have singular wills. So when we start to speak that way, it automatically starts to get drawn in. It's like a a flan collapsing in the cupboard, like we, it just starts to get smaller as opposed to larger because that's where our, our language works. So there's all of that. And I, am glad you said it the way which you did, which was when you go back and read these guys, you'll understand that they have a commitment to both of these things. The second thing is because of that, in light of that example, I'd say, here's a good example of, again, these contrarieties, these things that might seem like they're conflicting, but they come together and again, as a form of consummate harmony, I think the beauty of having both language—if you want to use covenant redemption, I'm okay with that. You want to talk about inseparable operations, I'm also okay with that. The fact that these two things could seem at odds with one another, all this says to us is, like we talked about before, we don't want to have simplistic faith, but we do want to have a simple faith, and that these do provide boundaries or markers which pull us back toward the center to say— If the scripture teaches us plainly that both these things exist, then it must be so even when we find difficulty in trying to bring them together in our finite minds. These are like lovely boundaries, fence posts, fencing that God gives us to say, like, you just can't know me the way that I know myself. And so we can find them to be both true and that they are both absolutely happening at the same time while emphasizing different things, but in a way that draws us back toward orthodoxy and a way toward some kind of error.
1: Yeah, so just to get a little technical, and you know um, Josh Summer over on the Baptist Broadcast, who's on the Society of Reform Podcasters, just did an episode specifically on this, on the Covenant of Redemption and the Trinity, and I think it was an excellent episode. So if, if this is still a question and our answer, our shortened version of this answer is not satisfying, go check out his episode. It was the most recent episode uh, that came out on January twenty sixth of two thousand twenty two. But the the way to sort of approach this technically is to say that the Covenant of Redemption is actually a single a single act of the Triune God yes right, right. so so because we're uh, the other thing to remember is that even though it happens before time it's still at extra right so so a lot of times the, and this has come up in the the uh, EFS debates is instead of drawing the distinction um, between temporal and pre-temporal which is how we tend to think of eternity past right Right? We think everything in eternity past is pre-temporal and it, we treat it all the same way and everything that happens after creation is in some sense temporal and we treat that all the same way. It's really more appropriate for us to think of the things the things that are God acting at intra or towards the inside. God exactly. as he is in himself and as the persons operate internally toward each other. And right. then God as he is, as he operates towards creation. And so the Internal ap- operations of the Trinity are divisible, and namely, those are the the uh, divine processions. We did a whole episode on that. And the external operations of the Trinity are indivisible, and we did a whole up op- op- you know a whole episode on that. We talked about that with uh, Adonis Vidu in his book. The covenant of redemption has this sort of strange blurriness to it, where there are certain elements that we could think of uh, we could think of as ad intra. Right, the, the the some people will actually say that the covenant of redemption is fundamental to the Trinity itself. Right, that the the fact that the Father covenants gives to the gives to the Son a kingdom that is then received through the Spirit that that represents in some sense the ad intra. Uh, relations between the persons of the Trinity. I actually think that's a dangerous move. I don't want right. to say anything about the the covenant of redemption is ad intra because then we end up with redemption having to do with something internal to God, which just leads you on all sorts of paths. There's scholars on both sides that aren't EFS advocates that would would make different arguments. So I'm, I don't want to just trash them and say they're all wrong. But I think it's a dangerous move. Instead, I think if we draw this distinction properly between um, things that happened in eternity past that may still be ad extra uh, and and really focus on the ad extra element of this, this is the father, the son, and the spirit decreeing salvation, right? And th- right. we're going to get in, in our ongoing series, we're going to get into sort of the decrees of God and, and how that kind of flows out into different acts, you know, in creation, redemption, all of those things we're going to get into that in a couple weeks, I think. But the, the covenant of redemption is an ad extra created effect, right? God didn't have to save. He didn't have to decree to create. And once he decreed to create, he didn't have to decree to have a people. Once he had decreed to allow the fall, he didn't have to decree to redeem. All of those things are volitional ad extra effects that God makes, that God creates, right? And we talked about how what God is and what God does have to be understood as different things. They're related. Obviously, everything God does is consistent with who he is, but they're not the same thing. And so just like other ad extra uh, operations, there's a certain accommodatedness to it, right? So what we see, what what the covenant of redemption actually is, or the pactum salutis actually is, is the singular act of God volitionally declaring and deciding how he would save his people. It's a single act of the triune God, but our mind can't really conceive of how a single, a, a single act can be equally done by three distinct persons, right? So this gets into the very fundamentals of, of, ex, of um, inseparable operations, is that all three persons are decreeing the covenant of redemption. They all are decreeing the pactum salutis. But they're not decreeing it as three people coming to it and each contributing their own portion to it. They're decreeing it as three persons who are equally operative in the very single act. And so we use the language of covenant or of of pact or agreement. We use that language as an accommodated sense, or I should say the scripture uses language that leads us to that as an accommodation to our weakness. Jesse and I can make an agreement to do something, but it's always two persons supplying their own their own operation to that act. So it's really two acts that are working in conjunction towards a singular end. That's not what we're talking about with the pactum sulit So a couple, a couple tricks of language that I think helps to make this clear. This is part of why I don't like the language of covenant of redemption. Even though I affirm everything about the covenant of redemption, I'm not John Murray here, right? I, I think that it's the best way to think of it instead of thinking of it as The father gives a direction to the son, which the son agrees to, right? That's kind of the suzerainty Suzerainty treaty model of it. The father imposes a task on the son, the son agrees to do that task and receives a blessing because he fulfilled that task. That's the suzerainty model. We get into all sorts of of danger. Now, the scripture uses some language like that, so we have to account for that. But I think it's better for us when we're talking about the pactum salutis to think about this as a mutual agreement that the father, son, and spirit all, all... Uh, participated in or all made together. It's not one party imposing something on another, which is what we tend to think of with covenant. It's three persons making an agreement to accomplish a single end. I think we are in a lot better positioning to understand what's going on and to not fall into some of these pitfalls. If we, uh, if we take that direction, if we go that approach with it.
0: Yep. Totally agree. We probably should have just said, listen, (laughs) <laughs> go to reformpodcast.com. Go to the Bible broadcast, the Bible, the Baptist broadcast, who just, like you said, did a great episode on this. That's Josh, our brother, Josh whole episode on this. So just go listen to that. It's so much more like we said we could do. We could just stop here and pivot to like a whole another episode for yes. six or seven hours, but we've got to keep going. We got we to keep going.
1: You ready? Can't stop. Won't stop. That's right.
3: Hey brothers. Uh, this is Josh from New Mexico. I am uh packing up the car, getting ready to to head home for uh, midwinter no-reason time, looking forward to spending some time with family. But I wanted to say, first of all, I love the podcast. Y'all have been huge in uh, my growth in Reformed theology and just uh, really just better understanding the Bible. But I did have a question. Um, I came across an article, I, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but he uh, he was also Reformed, but he said that... Presbyterians place too much emphasis on the Old Testament, and this is specifically talking about uh baptism and so he is um, not in favor of that, and he said that the New Testament should take some sort of precedence, and uh, anyway, I just, I thought that'd be really interesting if y'all wanted to tackle that, and it may even be a broader question about the relationship between the Old and the New Testament, and whether... There is such thing as one taking precedence over the other anyway. Uh, thank you guys so much uh, i just I really appreciate you guys you 're awesome
0: so Brother Josh, and this is different Josh than previous brother Josh from the first question. Asking a question about Old and New Testament generally in precedence and interpreting matters. Now, he, of course, brings in baptism, which we have done some episodes about this, so we can address it kind of in both ways. We should say this is, as we've noted before, this is the infamous Pedro baptism question because what happens is when we receive a voicemail, it automatically gets transcribed and it was transcribed as Pedro. I had to listen to this right away because I was like, what is this Pedro Who's baptism? Pedro, and why are controversy? We a question
1: about his baptism.
0: Yes, exactly. Like, who is Pedro and why can't he get baptized? And or is he doing the baptizing? So, this is a great question. And I'm going to, in the essence of trying to be very succinct and brief, I'm going to answer this with just two words and that is negative ghostwriter. Okay, your turn, Tony. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I can understand where the question comes from, right? So there are some schools of thought that would say um, almost, almost that the New Testament— um supplants the Old Testament, right? That, right? That's like some of the hardcore dispensationalists would say that the Old Testament isn't actually for Christians. It's it's not for Christians at all, that it's it's entirely, it's a different scripture for a different people and there's historical value for us to understand it, but it, it, it doesn't really apply to us. Most modern dispensationalists wouldn't go that far, but there's a continuum, right? And so I think there's a little bit of a veiled accusation that I, I don't really accept in this, that uh, that Pedro Baptist, Pedro Baptist, or I like to call them Pacto Baptists, actually, because I think Covenant Baptism is a better framework to think of than just sure. baby baptizing. Um, but Covenant Baptists who baptize children, they, um, they, that they somehow override the Old Testament. Uh, Or override the New Testament revelation in light of the Old Testament, right? That there's more of an emphasis placed on the Old Testament than there is on the New Testament. And I can understand where that comes from. I can understand how... And I I think in practice, sometimes the articulation of this actually goes that far. Um, Where I think we have to sort of land on this question is that the Old Testament doesn't take precedence over the New Testament, and the New Testament doesn't take precedence over the Old Testament. The New Testament is a hermeneutical lens that helps us to understand certain elements of the Old Testament better. But the Old Testament also is prerequisite revelation for us to understand what's going on in the New Testament. So we have to have both. And I I don't want to say there's some sort of like magic formula of how much weight you give. It's not like 60, 40. Um, It's different different uses doing different things. And, And what I would actually say is when you do let the New Testament properly interpret the Old Testament, you actually come out with paedobaptism. You actually come out with covenant baptism that is in, involved with baptizing children. Um, just to give another plug, uh, Distilling Theology is back. It's awesome. They've done like three episodes in a row, so that I think they're back on track and they're going to be recording new episodes. Um, but they had one queued up from before their long break with Kim Rodebarger. And Justin kind of asked him, like, "Well, what do you do with the fact that there's no infant baptism present in the New Testament?" He's like, "I don't, I don't accept the premise. Of course, there's new te- there's infant baptism in the New Testament. Um, even something as straightforward as in the Book of Romans, right? Paul says that what circumcision was in the Old Testament for Abraham was the sign and seal of the righteousness which was his in Christ. So, so." Old Testament circumcision interpreted in light of the new Testament is that old Testament circumcision was this sign and seal of the righteousness that someone had by faith when they trusted God for salvation. Well, the, the thing that's changed in the new Testament is just the sign itself. Now there are right. differences in terms of the application, in terms of somewhat of the audience of the, you know, the mode, all of those things are, are relevant differences. It's not a one-to-one correlation. There are differences. Um, But the fact is that both of them are signs and seals of the same covenant. And the the, the quote in Romans 11, in my opinion—I think it's Romans 11. I think it's 11.4—it actually proves that, that that the substance of the sacramental sign of the Old Testament and the substance of the sacramental sign of the New Testament— that it's the same substance that's being signified in both applications. So I kind of reject the premise of this question, that the premise being that if you, if you allow the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament, then you come out with sort of a Baptist framework. And if you allow the Old Testament to interpret the New Testament, you come out with a, a Presbyterian or a Continental Reformed framework. I reject that outright. I think most people... Who are coming to the New Testament and coming away with, or coming to the Bible and coming away with um, Presbyterian uh, covenant baptism convictions that includes children in the covenant? They're not coming at that because they've they've somehow said the Old Testament is uh, determinative for how we understand the New Testament. They're coming at it from a sort of a comprehensive hermeneutic that sees the substance of the covenant being the same throughout both covenants, and that substance. It, you know, chiefly is Christ, but what, what is signified by the various sacramental seals is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. The sign of communion works the same way. What's signified in the New Testament is is the death and resurrection of Christ and what that is for us. Well, what the what the sign in the Old Testament of the Passover lamb is, is the blood of that lamb sacrificed to preserve the people of God from death and destruction and consequently from hell. So all of those things are consistent. So it's not that one is interpreting the other, whichever direction you want to go. It's that we see a consistency throughout the whole corpus of the, the Bible that points to this singular substance being the substance of all of the covenants.
0: Right on. When we affirm that the Bible is fully orbed, that it is like the full wisdom of God, what we're essentially saying here is that all of this is useful to us. It's all been given to us in a particular way, so that it would be equally valuable as it were. So one, we could kind of flip Brother Josh's question here. I know he's asking in response to an article he read that was basically making this contention right. that somehow we're overemphasizing one testament over the other. We could flip it and say, listen, if you're going to say that you can discard a portion of the scripture, you better have a good reason for why you believe that could be discarded. Right. And in light of this particular question about pedo-baptism, there is, the argument of paper baptism which is centered around this continuity or cohesiveness, is very strong, very comprehensive, very cogent. So I think that, again, we've talked about this before, sometimes you can get in the sense of like, sometimes Baptist people will say like, well, I don't see any any uh, baptizing of infants in the New Testament. And so therefore, that's that's kind of the whole of my argument against it. That's not a particularly powerful argument, because you're going to find that the way in which we try to understand and synthesize all the scriptures together, which God has given us to say, this is, again, my full counsel, is to automatically work from a place by default where there is continuity. Because we, right. we definitely grant that so easily among some other things about salvation, justification, sanctification, uh, works of righteousness in Christ. We see that, I mean, we've, we've done episodes where we just talk about Christ being present everywhere. We're willing to grant that there, but it seems like sometimes we're not willing to grant it elsewhere. So really the short answer is there should be no domineering approach that somehow says, well, I'm going to go strictly to the old testament at the exclusion of the new, or I'm going to go to the new testament at the complete exclusion of the old. So it's and it's like you said, I like what you're saying. It's not necessarily about like trying to find some balance. It's it's looking for the continuity of God's sovereignty in his approach and his explanation of all the things that he's doing in the this like grand arc of redemptive history, which he narrates in perfection. And so it's it's transcribing, it's going across all these things. We of course are dividing the testimony that God has given us by the time in which he gives it to us. But to merely say like, again, this to me borders on the argument of saying, well, we have to overwrite the old Testament because the new Testament, I see Jesus and Jesus is only loving in the new Testament. So that's a new Testament God. Yeah. Like th- this is basically the same thing, just a different, same song, different verse. We, c- we can't let ourselves fall into that kind of way of thinking.
1: Yeah. And just to sort of put a pin in it and to, to finalize it one bit of evidence that tells me that the thesis that, um, Christians who emphasize the old Testament, or paedo emphasize emphasized the Old Testament at the expense of the New Testament, and that should be the reverse, is that the, the branches of Christianity that put the greatest emphasis on the Old Testament itself, right, so you think like Messianic Jewish Christianity... Um, which has a whole host of problems, but messianic Jewish Christianity or dispensationalism. There's this sort of strange branch of dispensationalists that want to say new test the New Testament people of God are distinct people from Old Testament Israel, but we want to act a lot like Old Testament Israel. So, like they they celebrate Passover, they uh, right. they focus on like Jewish rites, and they're really obsessed with studying that stuff. Both of those positions. End up being credobaptists, so this this overemphasis on the Old Testament that's present in those groups doesn't necessarily lead to uh, covenant baptism and inclusion of children in covenant baptism. And the second thing I'll say is that you know this question is coming from kind of a place of of responding to an article that seems to do what we're saying the the right thing is not any position. That dis- discredits or discards any part of the Bible as uh, being God-breathed, right, and useful for rebuke, teaching, correction, and reproof, all of these things. If anyone says any one portion of the Bible is not relevant to uh, to those things anymore, then they're wrong right that they're just wrong. So the right answer as is usually the case which it's funny because a lot of people try to paint this as the like well, we've got this extreme and you've got that extreme right. and as long as you're somewhere in the middle we're not saying like as long as you have the right balance of which which right. testament you're emphasizing. What we're saying is no this is an entirely different continuum. Exactly. There's the continuum that thinks that some parts of scripture are more relevant than others. And that's wrong all across that continuum. Then there's the continuum that recognizes that God has God has given us all of Scripture for our benefit, and we need to understand how all of it works together organically. You might want to call this like the, the Vossian biblical theology position or the Klein. You know, I'm not a Kleinian technically, but that kind of biblical theology model that's been made really, really popular in, in recent days by Meredith Klein and is kind of put forward by Reform Forum as the gold standard. That perspective would never say the New Testament takes precedence over the Old Testament or the Old Testament takes precedence over the New Testament. They just would never say it. It'd be like saying the trunk of the tree takes precedent over the branches or the branches takes precedent over the, the trunk. That's just incoherent. Branches do something different than trunks do, but you can't have branches without trunks. And if you have a trunk without branches, you don't have a tree. So I think that's the answer to the question in the long run is we need to reframe the question in light of an actually proper biblical hermeneutic instead of trying to figure out which which end of the spectrum of the wrong hermeneutic is the right end to be on, or where in the middle you should fall.
0: There you go, Brother Josh. You asked, does the Old Testament supersede the New? We responded with you can't have a tree without branches. Exactly. It's true. That's actually the answer.
1: Yeah, it's true. <laughs> right. Next up.
2: Hey guys, this is Chuck. Uh, just got a question regarding uh, the resurrection of Christ, and I guess it also kind of ties into something you'll probably be touching on with inseparable operations. But uh, who raised Jesus from the grave? Uh, do we attribute it to the Father? Do we attribute it to Jesus himself? Do we attribute it to the Spirit? Uh, would love to hear you guys uh, kind of uh, roll this one around, especially as it touches on how we look at the Apostles' Creed. Talk to you all soon. Bye.
0: So Brother Chuck has a great question here. I love it. He's coming in hot and direct. And that is, who raised Jesus from the dead? Was it the Father? Was it the Son? Was it the Spirit? And in this new vein of me being super succinct, I answer, yes. Okay, your turn, (laughs) Tony.
1: My one-word answer is God. So... How so dare you? You God got you to all on that one. We've got all of our bases covered. Yeah. I mean, this question comes from a really good place, right? The Bible does. talks about how um, the father raised Jesus from the dead. It talks about how the spirit of the father raised Jesus from the dead. Right. Jesus talks about he has the authority to lay down his life and take it back up again. So I, I think the biblical answer is that we see throughout all of scripture uh, that God alone has the prerogative of life and death. Um, right. that he, he is the one who opens the womb. He is the one who closes the grave. All of those things are done by God. And so in, in the new Testament, we have references again to, um, the fact that it was the father who raised Jesus from the dead, the power of the, you know, the, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from right. the dead. Um, and then that spirit is the spirit of the father. Cause that's in the Romans 10 passage we looked at last week. That's the spirit of the father or the spirit of God. But it's also the spirit of Christ. So if right. the spirit of God raising Jesus from the dead means that the father raised Jesus from the dead, it equally means that the spirit of Christ raising Jesus from the dead raised Jesus from the dead. It means Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. And this all comes back <laughs> right. to what we talked about with inseparable operations, right? We didn't do much with appropriations. We, we didn't talk about that that much because it's really complicated and we just didn't really have time for it. But the, the doctrine of appropriations teaches us um, that in scripture... We can see in various places where one person of the Trinity is sort of given a little bit more credit for one of the operations of the Trinity, right? So the the Father tends to receive the most credit in the work of creation, right? In in the beginning in Genesis 1 1, it's God the Father who speaks the word and his spirit hovers over the water, right? So God is kind of the chief actor in, in view in Genesis one. Well, in John one, we still have kind of the same thing, but now it's through the Son. Who, who right. the father created, right? So we have these different uh, angles that we look at the same operation, and depending on the angle that we're looking at it, we see one or more person. We see one person more than the others. But that does not mean that the other two persons are uninvolved. Right. It simply means that their involvement in that operation is somehow obscured from that angle. Right. Dr. Vidu compared it to like a, like a wine tasting where you might at one moment, you might taste, um, an element of, of the grapes. You might taste the grapes or the fruitiness, or if you're drinking a red wine, you might taste the earthiness. And sometimes it depends on what kind of glass you're using. Right. Jesse, Jesse will be able to tell you more than I could, but different beers taste differently in different glasses. So a right. certain kind of beer you drink in one glass because it focuses the aroma up to your nose. A different kind of beer you drink in another glass because it it's more open. It allows the beer to breathe. So even the, the position that we're looking at the operation from can change and can modify and can affect which person of the Trinity we see the most. Genesis 1 is looking at it from a very big picture trying to look at the whole creation account and saying, all right, well, let's look at everything. What's the, what's the bottom line? God created, God, the father created. Well, John one is trying to, trying to point us to the son a little bit more. And so now because we're coming from that posture of looking at the son, we see the son in creation a little bit more. And I think the resurrection is the same thing. I mean, it's the same as any other operation of the Trinity, all three persons working as one in a single operation that is inseparable, raised Jesus from the dead. So God raised Jesus from the dead. Right. That means the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all were involved in that work and all yeah. did that work properly to themselves. Now, I know yeah. why it's a complicated question, but that's that's the answer, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I love that Chuck. That sounds like Chuck, aggressive. That's Chuck is there. one of my oldest Facebook friends, and I, I, I love Chuck.
0: <laughs> I like that, though. It is complicated, but it's also simple with respect to Hunter. He he's using this as a foil for our conversation to get after, again, how do we tease that out, so to speak? Because there's a tendency, right, when we talk about like appropriation, to want to only identify with it in the way that we can properly understand in our own perspective and our finitude, which is to say, right. I, once again, well, if you are focusing on this thing, I can only focus on one thing at a time. I'm only one action, one will at a time, and so therefore it seems to say, well, there is economy here that is so separate and distinct that these are separate roles that don't cross over at all. Which is why, I think, on this podcast, we need to create a, a chant where, like, when I say inSEP, you say Op. Incept <laughs> Op. There we go. So like this idea that, of course, all of God is involved in all the work of God. And this is why the Bible is so kind to us. That God has given us both ways in which when we read certain passages, he's highlighting there is this focus, like you said, it's as if like if we're talking about like a cinematic theater here, like the camera shifts and pans and focuses and everything else goes out of focus so that we can see some element of what God is doing in this, again, n- this narrative redemptive arc. But at the same time, we're always drawn back to the fact that it, the Bible is clear that all of God is involved in all the work of God. And so we just find this difficult on the face generally. And so we're prone to kind of move in a direction where we say, well, well, really, if Jesus died, he was doing the dying and somebody needs to like outside of himself be the one to come and raise and resurrect him. That's not what the scriptures say. Though, of course, at times it emphasizes that again, God the Father and the Spirit were at work, but so also was Jesus Christ Himself. I think we could also turn this question around and say, like, well, what about the death of Jesus? And we find, of course, all this wonderful explanation about how Jesus giving up His life, even down to the very fact that Pilate finds it remarkable that He's already died because most criminals, anybody executed in that kind of fashion, would eventually just kind of slip out of consciousness, die very slowly in a way that was not cogent at all. And here we have Christ giving up His Spirit. all this volitional language. And yet God the Father, as he looks to him as the one who is uh, basically enacting the judgment, but also he looks ahead to the glory. We find the spirit, which he gives up. All of this is like, it's just beautiful in the way in which we find this consistency, the cohesiveness of all of God being involved in all the work of God, while at the same time you find in the scriptures this lovely way in which we're seeing the different persons receive a slightly different focus. But I like the example that Vidi provides of the wine because to say like you taste the grapes or you taste the oaky afterbirth like doesn't mean that all the elements aren't also in that taste in that palate on your palate when you consume of it it's just that right. at that moment you are, I don't even want to say appreciating, you are more aware, perhaps, of one over the other. But everything is all there. In fact, one could argue that the reason, in fact, you might taste something in particular is because of the confluence of all the things together at the time, working with and against one another. But being a cohesive whole, that's actually what allows us to draw out and even see that there are any kind of differences in what we're experiencing.
1: Yeah. And, you know, this. This we don't have time to get into it, but this also brings up... I think a really important Christological question too, because we've, we've done episodes in the past. It it was originally called Jesus is not a superhero, but I think I've read the episode since then. But the question, the question is often asked. And sometimes people think I'm like the crazy, like charismatic person. when I say this, the question is asked is, did Jesus do his miracles by his own power or did he do them by the power of the spirit or by the power of God? And the answer is yes. Right. But in different ways. Right. So when Jesus walked on water, in one sense, Jesus was walking on water in the same exact way that Peter was walking on water by the power of the Holy spirit, right? It was not, it wasn't that Jesus somehow had superhuman abilities. He wasn't Superman. He didn't, he didn't change the gravitons around his body to make it so he could float, right? He was operating by the power of the spirit, the same way that other prophets who did miracles were operating by the power of the spirit. But when considered from the perspective of his divine nature, just as the Holy Spirit was empowering him to walk on the water, he was empowering himself by his own divine power to walk on the water. So the same, the same things that we've said about the operation of Christ, because this is really a question about, the, I know that like we want to talk about the Spirit as though this is a Trinitarian question, but when you really boil it down, this is a Christological question. Right? Nobody is going to question, and we have explicit statements in the the New Testament, that both the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and also that the Spirit of the Father raised Jesus from the dead. So the Trinitarian element of this question is pretty much off the table. This is really a question about whether the Son, in any sense, raised himself from the dead. Right. And everything that we've said in the past about the miracles of Christ, being chiefly uh, the work of the Spirit, which the Son, according to his humanity, received beyond measure, right? The Westminster Confession says that the Spirit sanctified the Son's human nature, that he might be equipped to all, to do all the works of God. So the reason Christ could live a sinless life, the reason Christ could do the miracles he did, the reason Christ could know, him, know his own identity from the scriptures, that was all because he received the Spirit beyond measure. But at the same time, the inseparable operations of the Trinity mean that the Son was not absent according to his divine nature from exactly. empowering the Son, according to the human nature. And I know that that sounds Nestorian, and I totally recognize that it sounds Nestorian. And again, this is just one of those places where our language starts to fail us. We almost have to talk about the sun as though he's two persons in order to make sense of this. But that's that's just a side effect of our language being so limited. The sun is right. one person, but he operates on himself Uh, According to his divine nature, he's doing all the same work that the father and the spirit are upon his upon the son, according to humanity. The son is also doing that upon the son, according to humanity. And that applies equally to the son uh, raising himself from the dead. Right. So. I think we can move on. Again, this is, a, this is a question that can and probably should be at some point, an entire episode. Maybe when we do mid spring celebrate the resurrection for no reason season or whatever, we can do a, a, a discussion about Trinitarianism and resurrection or something like that. But um, I think that probably does it for now. This is uh, the
0: bottom line. I was going to say in the final analysis, which until like an episode recently, I didn't realize that that's something apparently that R.C. Sproul always said. Oh, you yeah, say all that the a lot time. in my business like in the final analysis, meaning like we did an analysis that was final and here's (laughs) what it said. So I, now I feel like I've, people are going to think I've been like channeling RC Sproul this time, but I just, that was just like colloquial language. But all that to say in the final analysis, our savior is truly God, truly man. So let's see if we can pack a couple more in. Here we go.
2: Hello, Tony and Jesse. This is Jimmy in New Hampshire. I have a question for you. Um, what is the difference between the law written on the heart in Romans chapter 2 for the unbeliever and the law written on the heart in uh, Hebrews 8 and obviously Jeremiah 31 quoted in Hebrews 8 for the Christian uh the same sort of language is used in both passages what's the difference because there
0: has to be a big one
2: (laughs) so anyways i look forward to um getting an answer from you guys that'd be great thank you bye
0: So Brother Jimmy has uh, this great question, and I love that he ends up by saying, there's gotta be a difference. And he's, of course, absolutely right. And I don't know that I've ever thought about it quite like this, but I like how he's positioned this. So what is the difference between the law that's written on the heart of the believer, and he looks to Romans two, versus basically like the law, I'm gonna say it this way, applied to the unbeliever that we find elsewhere in the scriptures, like Hebrews eight. And here's where I would start us. Of course, I think what we, we, even he knows implicitly is this sense that one is condemnation, one is not, that what we're after, when God comes and does this massive regenerating work, where he removes this heart of stone and implants it with this heart of flesh, what we're talking about is while the law is present in both ways to both persons, this volitional change, this change that acclimates and acquiesces our living and our obedience toward a love of the law that isn't just conscriptive, but that it changes how we approach all of life because now everything is congruous as opposed to being incongruent. That is, of course, the great benefits of the believer, even while we sin. We find that the law compels us to want to move in love because God has constrained us to live in this particular way. And that we find where the law was once a slave over us, that we felt compelled in some way that we couldn't quite even understand because it's still written in there. It's still codified. Right. But here we find in Christ that it becomes our greatest friend because God has triumphed over it on our behalf. And now, of course, we're not saved by good works, but for good works. So again, like I said before, we get to click, drag and drop our eternal destiny and judgment into the present underneath the blood of Christ so that the law is, is no longer enemy. I think what I like about his question, what brother Jimmy's getting at here is like, you can't get away from the law. You just can't get around it. Like even the person that says like, you know, well, I, I have no connection with Christ. I have no connection to Jesus. I'm not compelled by any of that nonsense. Like it doesn't apply to me. I'm not interested in It's still the person that has the standard of living or at least a standard for how they would like to be treated. This is the law, which still does apply. And as we We've quoted so many times before from Pilgrim's Progress, that scene where pilgrim's coming up the mountain and then just gets yeah the crap beaten out of him. And he's like, "Who was that guy? It's like, that was Moses. And that is the law. <laughs> That's and what Moses it, does. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what Moses does. So like, that is like the Rome, the, excuse me, that is the Hebrews eight style of like the law. Like the, the big difference is that you can't get out from underneath it. So to speak, it's present. But the question is the degree to which it is your master or it is now your friend, you have actually mastery over it because you are willing and under Christ to obey along with the law, but also your eternal destiny is not is no longer wrapped up in contrite obedience to the law in a way that has to bring forward some kind of like meritorious earnings yeah. so that therefore you can be in good standing with God. So I actually think his question has like all these lots, lots of layers to this in the sense that like you keep peeling it away. And what you find is that in every case, it just gives you an appreciation for what Jesus Christ has done for us underneath God's redemptive plan, something that we talked about all along in this particular episode. But the fact of the matter is, I think what he's getting at here is the scripture says, like everybody is underneath this law and actually everybody is cognizant of this law that is Romans one. Right. So like you can try to run away from it. You can try to pretend like it doesn't exist, but nobody actually lives that way. But then beyond that, the way in which the unbeliever has it written on their heart is the way in which it is just pure condemnation. The, yeah. the heart attitude of Romans 8, as it's applied to the Christian, is that the law is now our friend in Christ. So those two things must exist. They must be together. And so I think that this is kind of a, a really nice way of asking that question.
1: Yeah. The, the way that I like to think about it is, you know, the, the Bible describes— the heart of man under sin as stone right he right. takes the heart of stone he he replaces it with a heart of flesh and so i think i think of the law written on the heart of man as being written into two mediums right there's the law there's the law of god written into the heart of stone and it's it's rigid it's binding it's immutable. And of course, the law of God is immutable. But the right. the, the stubbornness element of rock, the law is written into stubborn hearts that resist it being written in at every step, right? It's hard to write something in stone. It's hard to chisel something in stone, right? The stone resists you at every single second. You have to apply effort every single second to write something in stone. And I think that reflects the response of a person who has a hard stone to the law, Right, they're going to resist against it. They're going to kick against the goads. They're going to they're going to push it off. They're going to disobey it. And they're not going to care that they're disobeying it. Contrast that with what it's like to write something into a soft service. Right. I mean, obviously, like I'm not used to like writing stuff in flesh. I'm not like carving, <laughs> carving words into my leg or anything like that. It just that. got weird. But think about like the difference between chiseling something into stone and writing it into like a piece of clay. The clay is malleable. It kind of gives with you right it's it's a lot easier sure. and in some sense the clay becomes softer as you work with it so it, that's the difference Right, So it's not so much that the law is different, it's that the right. medium that the law is right. being written into is different. For the unbeliever, they resist it, they fight against it, even though they recognize that it's there and it's present in them, they hate that. For the believer, it's a good thing, it's a gracious thing that the law is written on our hearts, because even if we don't have the Bible in front of us, right, that, that believer in Afghanistan who, who can't carry around a Bible, first because it's not available, and even if it was, it'd be dangerous to do so they can still have faith that God is by his spirit has written the law into their heart of flesh. So they don't have to go and cross reference with a manual every single time they need to make a decision. They can trust that God is working in them and that the spirit has written the law in their heart such that if they do what they believe is right, most of the time, they're actually going to get it right. And that's something that I think I, th- you know, I love our Lutheran brothers and sisters, but I think a lot of Lutherans have such a low view of what God actually does in sanctification, uh, in that they, they sometimes still believe, still act as though the Christian is totally depraved after a, after a generation. Right. Um, you know, that was one of the main criticisms of someone like Tullian Tovidian is he didn't seem to have a distinction between what we should expect of unbelievers and what we should expect of, of, um, Christians. The expectations of holiness and righteousness, and progressing in sanctification and growing in in obedience to the law. Well, the Reformed tradition has always understood that if someone is truly saved, that it would be it would be nonsense to think that they're going to live a life. That is reflective of being unsaved. Now, yes, we all fall, we all, we all sin, we all backslide in various ways, but by and large, our lives reflect the living reality of the truth in us. So if, if the law has been written into a heart of flesh, then that heart of flesh is going to then bring that law out exactly. into the world in our obedience. Not perfectly, not in this life, but it is going to come forth and bring about good works. So I think that's the biggest difference is it's not so much that the law is different. It's that what the law is written into and what we can expect that to accomplish is different. And I would
0: say like, I would add to that finally, like the power behind the law. So we speak about the law being written on, like you said, the heart of flesh. And then like, as you kind of said, like that there is a manifestation of that law in the life that's lived out well by the power of the spirit Whereas the law on the heart of the unbeliever is, again, just pure condemnation. There is no ability to actually achieve that. Instead, it becomes just a master. It becomes the thing that says... Uh, you will never achieve, you are not good enough, you cannot meet the standard. Whereas the standard has been met in Christ and sound with that law being applied where the standard has already been achieved and then it's being applied essentially in us, so to speak, in the center of our being where the Holy Spirit resides, it now can be empowered with behavior that isn't essentially, again, about trying to meet some kind of standard so much as it is trying to be like our elder brother. It is empowered by his sacrifice. It is applied by his spirit. And so therefore we live in a way that is in tune with keeping with the law, living according to the calling to which we have been called. And so again, we're talking about the same law applied in different ways and with different power and with different ability. I mean, this is why, of course, the law maybe can get you to ascend the mountain to see the promised land, but you're always going to die there. It never can take you in. And so it's this taking in as God has taken out that heart of flesh. And like you said, transcribed it Better than Google. We're not talking about Pedro Baptism. Better <laughs> onto the heart of the man. So
1: let's do. Let's finish with one more question. Let's do what it. What's you? All right. What's here we go. another fifteen minutes on between friends here? We'll be quick.
3: Hello, gentlemen. This is Jimmy from Philadelphia. Long time listener, first time caller. I am getting married soon, and I was wondering if you gentlemen had any marital advice or any passages from Scripture or theological concepts that have you found particularly helpful and convicting about how you approach your marriage and ways that you have improved and made your marriage more Godward and gospel centered. Uh that's it. Grace and peace. Thank you for what you do. Bye.
0: So this question from Brother Jimmy, by the way, this is a a different Jimmy. We had two Joshes, two Jimmys. We just like to pair them up. So Brother Jimmy's actually been tracking with us. This is Jimmy from Philadelphia. He's been tracking with us for quite some time. And I thought this was a great question to end on because we can share a little bit about ourselves very briefly. But first, let me say, because I think it's already happened, Brother Jimmy, congrats on your marriage. Congratulations. We are definitely pro-marriage. So... Congratulations. So let's answer this question. And what I like about it is, this is not like your cliche, like kind of Hallmark, Precious Moments question about marriage. The fact that he asks, how can you keep your marriage gospel-centered? And I'm going to try to be brief and just pick one thing, because there's lots of things we can talk about. So much ink has been spilled over this type of topic, and I have no issue. And in fact, I totally affirm things like, let's say, family worship, or singing together, or doing Bible study, or I don't know, sitting aside time to talk or going on dates. Yes. All those things are great. But because the question, it was about gospel centeredness for me, the one thing if I had to pick just one thing, and that would be both scheduled and extemporaneous prayer together, that cultivating a space where prayer is something that you do, even if you labor in it from time to time, but it's normative and natural to do that together. That because When we speak about the gospel, we're talking about God saving us into his family, uniting us with himself, and having the communication where we can go with boldness into the throne room of God, and then go as a couple together before him with each other, that for me is the single greatest thing that unites my heart and my wife's heart together with the Lord in a way that keeps the gospel at the center. So for me, it's got to be having scheduled an extemporaneous time together in prayer. What about you?
1: Yeah, you know, I think for me, um, I've had cause recently to reflect on the parable of the unmerciful servant, um, and so this is the parable where Christ tells. Um, it's right after the section on church discipline, which should tell you a little bit about why it's there and what it's for. But more or less, the you know the the. Um, a servant comes in and he has this un, unsurmountable debt, uh, a lifetime's worth of debt. And he goes before the the person, the king who he owes this debt to. And he says, please forgive me. I'll pay you back everything. And the king says, you know what? Don't worry about it. Your debt is forgiven. And then this servant Goes out rejoicing, jumping, clicking his heels, and then he sees someone who owes him a couple bucks because he, you know, he bought him lunch the other day, and he grabs him by the throat and he pushes him against the wall and he says, "You pay me back everything that I owe, or you owe me," and then he throws him in prison. And the the servant who is unmerciful is reflecting the fact that he doesn't get the gospel, he doesn't understand the good news of his forgiveness, and so he cannot extend that good news of forgiveness to someone else in, in front of him. And so I think for me the way that I, you know, I've always found useful uh, and maybe it's not something you consciously do, maybe it's just a matter of being aware of where you where you are in your own sanctification is I try to live out the gospel in terms of how I react to my family whether it's my wife or whether it's, you know, my brother-in-law or my my in-laws or my mother or my son when he's born I try very hard to extend the kind of forgiveness and the kind of grace that has been extended to me, or, or I should say like the tiniest, most insignificant analog of the kind of grace that's been extended to me. And what I found is that when you conscientiously do that, it, it orients everyone who you're extending that grace to, to grace itself. And so when, when I have, and this happens almost never because my wife is amazing and she, we just don't have, that doesn't happen often. But when I have cause to need to be gracious to my wife because she has done something that has hurt me or whatever, when I have cause to be gracious, I never have to ask her to apologize to me. Me being gracious to her brings about, you know, it's kindness that it's God's kindness that brings about our repentance. Well, my kindness towards my wife, when there's been some sort of wrong on her part, which again, almost never happens, but that brings her to a place where she's ready to sort of understand the gospel and see the implications for our relationship in light of that. So for me, I think living, living that life. And like I said, maybe it's not something you can consciously do, but maybe it's something that's just being aware of where you're at in your own sanctification, that if you can, if you can extend gospel forgiveness and um, gospel with a little G forgiveness to those around you, especially in your marriage. But I think seeing, seeing that grace um, extended to others in your family, your wife or your children are going to see how you react to other people. You know, I come home and I tell... Tell stories to you know. Tell talk about my day at work, and maybe someone said something mean to me on the phone, or a coworker, um, you know, said something untrue about me that made me look bad to my manager. Whatever the the situation might be, well, if I if I hold on to that and I insist on getting my my rightful vengeance against them, that paints a picture for my wife that's different than if I say, you know what though, God's been so gracious to me, and this this in the grand scheme of things was a really small thing, and I can let it go. That paints a different picture to her. And so, keeping that in mind and living a, a very, I hate the phrase live out the gospel because I don't, like we said earlier, like the gospel is a set of objective facts, but live your life in a way that reflects the shape of the gospel, maybe live a gospel shaped life towards those around you. That is going to automatically and and necessarily have implications for your marriage and keeping your whole mindset centered around that gospel shaped life, a life shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ and transformed by it.
0: Well, there you go, loved ones. That was basically like six, Episodes and a single episode of the Reform Brotherhood a Quintessential and another great question cast. So once again, now that we're at the end, if you're thinking, you know what, I want to get my voice in there, do this. You can do two things. One, you can send us an audio clip of your question to info at reformbrotherhood.com. Or you can just call and leave a voicemail of your question in your own voice at 607-444-2767
1: Bros.
0: And remember, we ask that so we can get as many of our listeners involved in those question casts, keep your questions succinct and to the point, and that way we can make sure we can get as many people as possible into the conversation. So we've done it again, Tony. We brought back, another favorite, and let's keep it going. So if we can get enough questions, we'll just keep a regular cycle of these things going because I love it when we get to hear from listeners who are tracking with us, who are interested in Reformed theology and who are trying to follow closely after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
1: Yes. And don't forget, we always have a contest going on. That's right. So if you right. go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest or reformbrotherhood.com slash 276, we don't know what the contest is going to be yet, but there will be a contest up uh, for something that we'll announce on the next episode. By the time you hear this, we'll have decided and it'll be there. But by the time we're recording this, we don't have a clue yet because that's just how we roll. So, but check it out. You can win some really cool stuff. Uh, previous, um, previous, Prizes have been things like the Persistent Prayer book by by Guy Richard, which I recently found out his name is actually Guy Richard. It's like a French name, Ooh, so fancy. we're very sorry, Guy. Uh, or you could have won a copy of Adonis Vito's book, uh, his new book, Divine Missions, a handbook, I think it's, or an introduction, something along those lines. I really should like look up the name of these things we're giving away. <laughs> or something sweet like a Reformed Brotherhood uh, or like a Reformed Turbo fanny pack nice, bright purple. So check it out, reformbrotherhood.com slash contest or reformbrotherhood.com slash 276 and get entered to win. All right, Tony. Well, you know what time it is. When
0: I say insep, you say op, insep. Op. Until next time, honor
1: everyone. (laughs) Love the brotherhood.